Well, brethren, we have the privilege this morning of hearing from our brother Chandler Kelly. Uh, most of you know Chandler and his wife Bailey um, and their son Haddon. Uh, Chandler is a student at uh, IRBS Theological Seminary, uh, or I should say International Reformed Baptist uh, Seminary. Chandler is also a gifted brother in our congregation, which means he has um, a license to preach, as it were. And so let us eagerly receive his ministry to us this morning. Chandler, please come and preach. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this Lord's Day. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 22. This is a a dark passage in many respects. It's a challenging passage, to say the least. And many would argue it's the most disturbing passage in all of Scripture, what God commands Abraham to do. So let the text challenge you as you hear it read, as God speaks to you this morning. But I urge you to, I challenge you to hear God's word with the ears of faith and to read with eyes of faith as well. So with that, please turn with me to Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for a burnt offering. And he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, when they came there, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself 
I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, as his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Geham, and Tehash, and Mayaka. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we come to you having given thanks for the many ways you have provided. But now, Lord, we arrive at the preaching of your word where you speak to us in our midst. Father, help us to discern this difficult passage, but help us to see with eyes of faith that you provide for us, Lord. And help us to give thanks as a result. Lord, we ask that you would be present in our midst, that your spirit would bless the preaching of your word this day. We pray that Christ, and Christ crucified, would be proclaimed in, in your midst. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. What would you do if God had commanded you to sacrifice your own child? Would this call into question your beliefs about God, His goodness, who He says He is, His faithfulness? Would it shake your faith? Would it cause you, maybe like we see all around us, would it cause you to deconstruct, maybe? I think the issue here that this passage challenges us to consider is that we don't know how to respond when God tests our faith, when we go through trials in the Christian life. Well, if you remember, um, a couple years back, we went through the book of Job as a church. Recall the ideas of Job's friends. I think we share some of their inclinations. We think that when we suffer, that's because God is punishing us, maybe. Maybe for a sin of ours. Maybe like Job's friends, we connect our faith too closely with our own earthly and worldly possessions. Or we presume to know the mysterious ways of God. And worse yet, like Job's wife, maybe we doubt God's goodness altogether, not doubting that he exists necessarily, but not trusting in him, saying, curse God and die. In all of this, we fail to see God's testing, not as a sign of those things, as punishment necessarily, but as testing as a sign of God's love and provision for his people. And in the midst of testing, that the Lord will provide for you. And conversely, we fail to see the greater testing and sacrifice that God himself took on in the person of the Son. Well, if it isn't clear from the passage, God's provision is the key theme of the text. This text shows that God has, that God does, and God will provide for his people. And God has, will, 
God has, does, and will provide for his people. Now, just as a note going forward, our English Bibles do obscure this idea just a little bit. I think it's clear enough already, but when you see the, the verbs seeing in the passage, like Abraham saw the ram, Abraham saw the mount, as well as providing, the Lord provided at Mount Moriah, it's the same verb in Hebrew. To see and to provide are the same word. This is really a play on words. It's a pun in many respects. But it highlights even further the idea that Abraham sees the provision of the Lord. It's the same word, and it's being highlighted through, through sight in the text. So as we go forward, when you, when you hear key words like Abraham saw or the Lord provided, remember that. Keep God's provision in mind as we go deeper into the text. Because again, it all points toward the greater provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, there are three, three points from the text about God's provision. First, God will provide a sacrifice. God will provide a substitution. And God will provide assurance. The Lord provides a sacrifice, a substitution, and assurance. So first, the Lord will provide, he will provide a sacrifice. This is seen in the first eight verses, the first section of our text. Here we see Abraham's faith being tested. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis up to this point, this is not the first time Abraham's faith has been tested. In fact, uh, we can see throughout Abraham's life, this is the tenth and final testing of Abraham. But as the tenth and final testing, it's the most challenging as well. Because it calls into question for Abraham, well, is the Lord God really a good God? Is he truly faithful to his word? To his promises, especially about the only son Isaac? What would you do if you're Abraham? What would you think? Now, as we consider that question, we need to think about who God is, who he says he is in his word, who what we can know about him in nature. But first, consider what he says about himself in this passage. Well, there's covenantal language throughout the passage. We see first that the Lord's angel comes to Abraham, and he calls him by his covenant name, Abraham. This is not pointless. This is to recall to mind the promises that he has already made to Abraham concerning the promise. And later in the passage, we see the angel... Um, in many ways, the angel is, is likely God himself as a theophany. But we see the angel, the Lord God, being called the Lord God, his covenant name. Again, recalling to mind the covenant promises that God has laid forth in the past. Now contrast this with, with God's dealings with Hagar in the previous chapter, in chapter 21. There, Hagar and Ishmael were tested, as it were. We see that Hagar and Ishmael were exiled from uh, the family of Abraham by Sarah. And here in our text today, in Genesis 22, we see Abraham and Isaac are separated from the people. And Abraham further separates himself from the two servants he brought. We also have the potential death of a son, and not just any son, but a child who's been promised a line of descendants in Ishmael and in Isaac. We also see God's intervention. God intervenes preventing the death of these sons. In both passages, both Hagar and Abraham have their eyes opened, as it were, to see the Lord's provision. In one, in one passage, we see the Lord providing a well, and in another, we see the Lord providing a ram. 
And finally, at the end of both passages, God reaffirms his promises about Ishmael's descendants and Isaac's descendants. But the difference between the two is in God's dealings with Hagar, his promises and his provision is is merely providential. But here with Isaac, his promises are covenantal. It's in special covenant with Abraham, and it deals with a promise line that would ultimately lead to Christ. So in other words, God has not arbitrarily demanded something from Abraham, but he does so with a purpose and with the promise in mind. He maintains, he reaffirms the integrity of his promises. But consider Abraham and Isaac. Consider father and son here. First, notice Abraham's quick obedience. Here I am, Lord. He obeys the Lord without hesitation. Now contrast this in previous chapters with how Abraham dealt with God's judgments on Sodom and Gomorrah. What did he do when God said that he would destroy those nations? Well, he pled. Abraham pled with the Lord multiple times that God would have mercy. And yet, here, he just says, here I am, and he obeys. Now, the cynic in me wants to say, well, that's, Abraham's just a sinner. He, he cared more about the sinful nations than his own son then, right? But I think the reality is, and as we've seen through the, his, the narrative surrounding his life, the Lord has really worked in Abraham's heart. Through all the testing that he has endured, the Lord has strengthened Abraham's faith so that at this point he shows that he does truly trust in the Lord fully and completely. Continual testing of his faith has strengthened it. And remember, God has promised to Abraham a legitimate son through Isaac. And if you recall also, Sarah's womb was as good as dead. In their old age, 100 years old, how could you imagine your promised son coming through such a barren womb and yet the Lord fulfilled his promise by the birth of Isaac? And that strengthened Abraham's faith leading up to this event itself. If the Lord did that, he can surely raise his son Isaac from the dead. Over and over, Abraham responds to God with, Here I am, unhesitating obedience. And as Hebrews 11 says, This shows us that Abraham had full assurance of faith because he knew and he believed in the promises of God. That through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He believed that had Isaac Isaac died, had he really sacrificed his son, God would have raised him from the dead either way. And he says so himself in the passage. God will provide for himself a lamb. He tells his son that. And he tells his servants that they would return as well. So Isaac, Abraham had full faith no matter what happened, the Lord would provide in the situation that he would fulfill his promise. But consider Isaac as well. It says that he is the only son. Now, it sounds strange since I just mentioned Ishmael. Ishmael was the, the first son of Abraham, technically speaking. But by only, what is referred to is, is not by order, but by legitimacy and by covenantal inheritance. Isaac is the only one who would inherit the covenant promises of Abraham. Also, Isaac was, he was no boy. If you're reading from an older translation, it might say uh, he was a lad, and I think this brings to mind a young child of sorts. But in reality, Isaac, at this point of Abraham's life, Isaac was probably in his mid-20s or 30s. He was a grown man. And this tells us two things. First, he wasn't dumb. He wasn't oblivious to the situation. 
In verse 7, when he asked his father, where's the animal for the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And when Abraham answered him that the Lord would provide a lamb, it's likely that Isaac knew what was going on here. And just as when he was actually laid on the wood later in the passage, he could have easily overpowered his father, but he also submitted to the will of his father and ultimately the will of the Lord. I remember his father is at this point 120, 130 years old, and you have young Isaac. If he didn't want to be sacrificed, he could easily have, have resisted. But this tells us that it wasn't just Abraham who had faith, but Isaac himself also had faith. Isaac obeyed here. Despite not knowing what his father was doing or why he was leading him like a sheep to be slaughtered, Isaac obeyed. Now this father-son relationship tells us something deeper as well. They were both tested, they both obeyed. We could say, as, as older writers do, that Abraham and Isaac in this passage worked in, in one purpose, in one mind. As we'll see, again, this passage is about the provision of Christ himself. But the father and son here in Genesis 22, they're a picture of the harmony between the father and the son in eternity past, who covenanted, who covenanted being in one purpose to redeem the elect. This passage is a clear picture of that. Both fathers offer up their only sons. Both sons willingly bear the wood of the sacrifice, the wood to be burned in the cross. And as you heard this morning from our reading of the gospel, Romans 8.32 can almost be read as the same in Genesis 22 as well, but Romans 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So in other words, Genesis 22 gives us a picture of what God, the Father and God the Son, covenanted to do in eternity past. And it shadows, it prefigures the sacrifice of Christ to come. Christ is the substance of what is pictured in our passage this morning. He is the embodiment, the personage of God's provision for you in the gospel. He is the lamb, he is the sacrifice that God provides for us. This brings us to our second point then. God provides a sacrifice, but God also will provide a substitution. This is seen in verses 9 through 15. In these verses, Abraham passes the test of faith. Now note God's appearance to Abraham. Again, Abraham has no hesitation to obey God. He arrived where God told him to arrive. He did so without hesitation, without reluctance. And likewise, Isaac also obeys as well. I'm not sure if you've seen uh, Caravaggio's painting of this scene of the binding of Isaac. I encourage you to view it sometime. It's, it's striking. But it helps us to imagine what it was like for both Abraham and for Isaac and the situation as a whole. You have a father holding down his son to be sacrificed with a knife in his hand, turning almost with excitement at the angel. But if you look at the eyes of both Abraham and Isaac... You can see distress, you can see, you can see a sense of worry, yet in both faces there's a clear trust in that whatever is happening is according to the will of God, and that God would turn some good out of this. Because remember, Abraham believed, he believed by faith that God would raise his son from the dead. And Isaac, again, you can see his worry, his lamenting 
his lamenting expression, yet it's clear that he submits and he trusts both his Father's will and his Heavenly Father's will. We can imagine, we can imagine Isaac's thoughts and, and the words of Jesus through the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even the words, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. But the Lord appears. Specifically, it says an angel of the Lord, though most Christians have interpreted this passage as, uh, or this angel as being God himself in visible form. Uh, Some go as far as to say that he is the pre-incarnate Christ, but uh, regardless, we see later in the passage that uh, the Lord swore by himself in making the oath with Abraham. So this is the Lord present in the text. And in Hebrews 6, it says as much as well, quoting this passage, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had none greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So it's not just an angel, a messenger that appears, it's God himself appears. He is present in the testing of Abraham. And he intervenes in the nick of time. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Consider Abraham's response. Just as he had no hesitation to obey the words of the Lord when told to slaughter his son, you can almost hear the excitement when he's, he's told to stop, to, to not raise the knife against the son. You can almost hear the, the knife hit the ground. Here I am, Lord. There's a sense of relief, and yet continual trust. But this raises a concern. Um, did God change his mind? Because Abraham obeyed, did God all of a sudden realize, oh, I shouldn't do this. Should I, should I tell Abraham to stop? No, I, I think this actually highlights the doctrine of, of substitutionary atonement. Keep in mind that what we know about God from his word and from general revelation. From reason and nature and general revelation, we know that God is real and we can deduce from that that he is immutable, he does not change, and he's impassable. He is not changed by anything outside of himself. He's not moved by passions like we humans are. And God's word is clear as well. James 1, there's, there's no variation or shadow due to change in God. Malachi 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 102, the Lord is the same and his years have no end. And I think most clear, most pertinent to this passage here is in Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? In other words, God is faithful. He is unchanging. He will not break his promises. He did not change his mind. This passage gives us an answer to that question. The ram, it did not magically appear. It doesn't say the ram appeared out of thin air, that the God created a ram out of nothing. No, it says, it implies that the ram was there all along, despite Abraham and Isaac not seeing the ram with their own eyes. God... Uh, in the substitution of the ram, it was not a backup plan or a plan B. God knew that Abraham would obey, and he provided. I mean, we could say that he provided the obedience for Abraham, but he provided the sacrifice itself for him. He providentially ensured that there would be a substitution for Isaac. 
whether Abraham and Isaac saw the ram as they, they trekked up Mount Moriah or not, the ram would be there and the ram would provide sacrifice to God. So did God change? Well, no, God did not change. His plan did not change. His promise did not change to Abraham. His being, his very being did not change. God is not changed by Abraham's obedience in this passage. But this is only a a part of the bigger picture then. We see a ram that's offered for sacrifice, but what about the lamb? If you go back, Abraham and Isaac speak of a lamb for sacrifice. But here we have a ram. Well, whether Abraham knew it or not, I think we can say that he was prophesying the coming of Christ. He was a prophet here in this text. Sure, God did not provide a substitutionary sacrifice. God did provide a substitutionary sacrifice on that day through the ram. But he speaks of a lamb. And there's no lamb that appears. The lamb is a shadow. It is a promise. It is a figure of Christ who would come. He was the lamb. Christ was the lamb who would be slain for Abraham's sins. For Israel's sins. For your sins. Just like the rams appearing, Christ's incarnation also, it was no accident. It was no plan B. It was decreed from eternity past for your redemption. John in the book of Revelation says, Jesus Christ was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. I think this text says just as much, though in shadow and prophecy. But why does, why does God test Abraham? Was it arbitrary? Was it a mockery of him? To bring it closer to home, why does God test your faith? Why do you go through trials and suffering in the Christian life? Why does God allow that? Even decree it. Why does he tell us as Christians, as disciples of Christ, that we must even hate our own father, our own mother, our own brothers and sisters and children in order to follow him? to make an example of us in the world? Is it to punish us? No. God tests us. He tests us because He loves us. His discipline, he disciplines us as His children. For what good father refrains from the loving rod of discipline? As we'll consider in the final point, this passage ends with, it ends with a covenant renewal. and God reminds Abraham of his faithfulness to show him that this was not just to make a mockery of you, Abraham. This was not a pointless test. This was for your good, for the strengthening of your faith, and to remind you once again of my promises, which I will fulfill in Christ. And again, remember that God himself took upon, he took upon the greatest, most unjust suffering in his son, Jesus Christ. And yes, though he's pictured in the lamb, he is also pictured in the ram also. The ram was a substitution that day for Isaac, just as Christ is the substitution for the sins of the world. Just like the ram, Christ appeared at the appointed time to provide an atonement for God's people. And the ram and Christ are both, as the text says, caught in a thicket. His horns were caught in a thicket. As our Baptist forefather John Gill points out, he follows a line of biblical imagery. But he argues, and I agree with him, that this thicket is a shadow It's a symbol of the crown of thorns that Christ would wear on his way to the cross. This was pointing to the greater lamb, the greater ram, 
Jesus Christ. So to summarize, how then in our testing and our sufferings, how can we question the mysterious ways of God? How can we question God's goodness and faithfulness? I think the only reason that we would or could question it is if we believe that we can supply our own provision, if we're sufficient in ourselves. As one writer says, faithful people will be tempted to want only half of the Christian life. Most complacent religion will want only a God who provides, not a God who tests. Some who are in bitterness will want a God who tests but refuse the generous providing of God. Some in cynical modernity will regard both affirmations as silly, presuming that we must answer to none but rely upon none, for we are both free and competent. But Father Abraham confessed himself not free of the testing and not competent for his own provision. Well, do these descriptions describe you in any way? Examine yourself. From where do you seek provision? Do you seek it within, from yourself, from your own works and goodness? Do you seek it in earthly comforts and wealth and health and prosperity? Or do you seek it from an idol, from, from an idolatrous view of God, for instance? One who gives based on your own goodness. One who rewards on your obedience. Truly, we, we only receive provision and new life from Christ alone. If you're not trusting in Him, if He is not your only provision, then you have no hope. So I beckon you, turn to Christ in faith as, as the propitiation, as the substitution for your sins. Find life in Him as Isaac found life in His shadow. Turn to Him by faith, giving up your earthly comforts, your trust in yourself and worldly things, turn to Christ in faith. Believe as Abraham and as Isaac that should trial and suffering come, Jesus Christ will provide for your every spiritual need. He will do so at the appointed time. Summarize this section, verses 9 to 15. We should view trials and tests of our faith not as signs of judgment or signs of God's separation from us, but really as signs of His love, and a reason for us to draw closer to God as He promises to draw closer to us. For God knows, despite our own denial of this, we can't provide for ourselves. Only He can provide. If you can remember Christ's substitution on your behalf, you have no reason to question God's goodness, God's faithfulness in the midst of trials suffering. This brings us to our final point then. God provides assurance. God will provide assurance. We see this from verses 16 to the end of the passage. In these final verses, we see a covenant made or a covenant renewed with Abraham. We see a genealogy given at the end. And both of these, the covenant and the genealogy, deal with, they point to the promise of God that God would bless the seed of Abraham. This gives us an assurance that God has, God can, He does, and He will provide for His people. So, 
In dealing with the covenant, again, the angel here is likely a theophany. It's God himself appearing in Abraham's midst. It's a visible manifestation of Abraham's covenant Lord, the one who has made covenant with Abraham in the past and maintains that covenant with him on that day. And as it says, he swore by himself and he repeated his, his promise to Abraham. Now, here in the passage, the, the issue I think we might um, find is that God says explicitly that he rewards Abraham based on obedience. So what do we make of this? Well, first, we have to keep in mind, this is a renewal of God's covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant that was based partly on Abraham's obedience. It was a, it was a covenant with a works principle. Do this and live, and if you fail to do this, you will surely die. You will not inherit the promises of God. But I urge you not to read this covenant, this promise here, only as a covenant of works or as law. It is that, it includes that, but it's also a shadow of something greater to come. There's a better, more perfect covenant to come. Not based on works, but based on grace. There's a better Abraham to come. A better priest, we could say. One who would offer, who would bring about perfect obedience, a perfect offering of himself on our behalf. And there's a better reward. There's not merely physical descendants in the covenant of grace. We don't inherit just physical land. We don't inherit just worldly good and success and children. We inherit eternal life, resurrection, and righteousness. Life with God, ultimately. And that can't be broken by our own disobedience, unlike it was true for Abraham. So this covenant, though it is a covenant with a works principle, it prefigures the greater realities that we have today in Christ. So when we fail to obey, at times, when we are tested, when we do suffer, when we're tempted, when we fail to obey, we still receive those promises of God. But we receive them by faith, not by works. But remember, even in Hebrews, it says that Abraham believed by faith. Abraham believed by faith. That's a picture for us. So that even when we do obey God, we aren't rewarded on the basis of that. At least in an earthly manner, God does bless us spiritually when we obey his commands and his precepts. But the difference between us and Abraham is the object of faith. For Abraham, it was a lamb. For us, it was as well, but for Abraham, it was only in shadow form. He did not know what we know today about Christ. We have Christ in substance and in fulfillment of what Abraham only knew by promise. By promise that started in the garden. So Abraham looked ahead at the promise. We look back. We look back and see what, who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. Just to tie, tie in the genealogy as well. Speaking, in, speaking of looking ahead, speaks of the descendants of Nahor that followed. Now this isn't immediately relevant to the testing of Abraham, but there's an important name in there. The daughter of Bethuel, Rebekah. If you're familiar with Genesis, Rebekah is the one who would be married to Isaac. So though through Isaac and Rebekah would come Jacob and Israel and the promised seed leading to Christ. So again, this point, the genealogy, is it's not disconnected from the passage, but it reiterates the same thing, God's provision of his promised seed, that he remains faithful to his promise. 
he's pointing forward to a future provision for us as well. And by this, we can have assurance, we can have surety of God's promises, because he has fulfilled his end of the promise in Christ. But our challenge today, in all of this, in thinking about God's provision, in the testing of our faith, what do we do when tomorrow at work we face, we face trials, we have a difficult day? When next week we're tempted to fall into sin and backsliding? Maybe next year we, we lose a loved one. How will you bear your own wood of sacrifice, your own cross in the Christian life? How will you endure through the trials that God has decreed in your life? Do you look ahead and worry? Do you look to tomorrow worrying about what the future holds? Do you doubt the goodness of God, maybe? Do you doubt his faithfulness? Do you treat God only as a lawgiver who, well, if you obey, he'll bless you mightily, but if you fail to obey, he'll punish you. You'll be separated from God. Well, I urge you then, don't worry. Do not doubt God's goodness or faithfulness. But look to Christ. Look to Christ. He's a picture of of the one who is provided as the sacrifice once for all to appease God's wrath. He was slain as a substitution on your behalf. In his life, his death, his resurrection, they give us assurance on this day and forevermore. This is what God is calling you to today, to look to the provision that we have in Christ Jesus, the greater Abraham, the greater Isaac. Look and see what God has provided. And this will cure all of your spiritual ailments. So, in conclusion, we've seen that God provides a sacrifice, the lamb, ultimately. He provides a substitutionary death And he provides assurance to his promises. But again, the question, why the test? Well, we can't know, we can't presume the mysterious ways of God, why God tests us when he does, why he gives and why he takes away. We can know that he is good. We can know that he is providential. That he provides, that he does not change. He's faithful to his promises and he says what he promises he will do. He does what he says he will do. These things anchor true faith in the one who embodies them all, Jesus Christ. Everything about this passage points us to see the provision that we have in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Christ is seen in Abraham's testing, in an unhesitating obedience to the will of God. It's seen in Isaac's submission to his own father's will. It's seen in the angel who covenants with Abraham and with the ram who was caught in the thicket and again seen in the Lamb who would be the final sacrifice for our sins. So where do you see Christ today, brethren? Consider the past year. What do you have to be thankful for? How has God worked in your life? How has He blessed you spiritually in the last year, despite earthly losses and the lack of gain? Dwell on those things. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. But also, I urge you, Consider the meal before you that we are going to partake in. As you see the bread broken for you, remember that the lamb, remember the lamb who was slain, his body was broken on your behalf. And as you drink the wine, remember the blood which was spilt 
and the cup of bitter wrath which was drunk for you. As we partake, God is reminding us, if you're believing in Christ by faith, of his many covenant blessings and how he's providing for you this day, tomorrow, and forevermore. So we look forward to Christ's return. This is how God provides for us this Lord's Day. So let us dwell in these things today and give thanks. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we come to you as a, as a self-sufficient people who, who rely on ourselves for provision. We think we can provide all that we need, all that we want, when in reality, Lord, we are helpless without your grace. Lord, help us to see your provision in all things, not just earthly things that come and go, that pass, but looking to the things that you've given us in the heavenly places, a life with you, citizenship in the heavenly kingdom, righteousness and eternal life. Father, help us this morning to turn our hearts toward the provision of your Lamb, Jesus Christ, who was slain before the foundation of the world. Lord, help us to trust in your provision. No matter what test you decree in our lives, strengthen us, turn us to Christ. Pray all this in his name. Amen.